I wake up, I look out my window, and I was expecting like, snow or something terrible to happen. I look out, I'm like, hey, there's no snow on the ground. God's, God's very merciful to us this week. So and then I go outside, you know, and I, my car is just encased in like a block of ice like that woolly mammoth those scientists found a few years ago. So, of course, I spend the first 15 minutes of my day just shoveling away. So that was my literal icebreaker this morning. <laughs> so, okay, so there's one thing you guys need to know about me. It's, and this is both my greatest and my best and my worst quality, is I do not follow the news at all. So this is great because I feel like it, it keeps me like kind of pure in a way. Like I'm not swayed by the winds and tides of this chaotic world, but I'm also staggeringly ignorant about important things like politics, economics, and celebrity fashion. So I don't watch television. I stay far away from internet news sites. I never read the fake news on Facebook, and no one reads newspapers anymore. So my primary news source is accidentally reading a headline in U.S. Weekly while I'm standing in line at the grocery store. So I probably know more about the British royal family's wedding plans than I do about our president's tax reform. <laughs> anyway, the point is, if a piece of news reaches me through my carefully constructed bubble, that means that something has gone seriously wrong. It needs to be really bad news if even I can't ignore it. And aside from the tragic shootings and the devastating hurricanes, the news that's been clamoring for my attention the most in these last few months has been this, this disgusting epidemic of Hollywood sex scandals. Yeah, so a few months ago, Harvey Weinstein, one of the most powerful producers in Hollywood, was accused by a woman of using his position to solicit sexual favors and all kinds of other inappropriate behavior. And this, this triggered a floodgate of other women who had been victimized by him and others to come forward, and then it just dominoed into dozens of other Hollywood celebrities being outed as sexual predators. So the good news is, they are now giving away tickets to the Oscars this year for free to fill up all the empty seats left by all the disgraced celebrities who can't show their faces in public anymore. But it really just shows how nasty the show business is. And one of the worst things about this whole scandal is how pathetic the apologies these celebrities have, have given. So these guys, they, just, they, they shifted blame, and they made excuses, and they downplayed their actions, and they've done just about everything except admit that they were wrong. So there are dozens of examples if I wanted them, but I'm going to go back to the source. Harvey Weinstein, again, thank, thank you, you know, he, he can join uh, Bernie Madoff as another person, you know, another high prominent Jewish person who's acting badly in public, you know, gone are the days of, you know, Albert Einstein's, you know. But Harvey Weinstein, when he's confronted by irrefutable evidence that couldn't be denied or hushed up, he issued this statement. I came of age in the 60s and 70s when all the rules about behavior and workplaces were different. That was the culture then. I see. Problem isn't you, Harvey. You're just misunderstood. This is a cultural misunderstanding. See, you're from the good old days when women knew their place and they let powerful men do whatever they please. Oh, the girls these days are too sensitive. That's sarcasm, by the way. Don't, don't misquote me if... Well, see, why can't anyone just own up, take responsibility, make things right, and change for the better? Isn't that what Yeshua taught? You know, in 1 John verse 9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the last thing these guys want to do is confess to their sins because that would be admitting they were wrong 
And probably the last thing these guys want is to be cleansed because then they wouldn't get to sin anymore. Nobody takes responsibility. No one changes. No one gets better. And that's why I don't read the news. But I wanted to talk about this idea of taking responsibility for our actions because it's absolutely key to this week's Parsha, Vayigash. So in Vayigash, we finish the story of Joseph and his journey from a slave sold by his brothers to Egypt to becoming a powerful ruler and reunited with his family after many years. But I want to do something a little different today. Today, I don't want to focus on Joseph. Uh, a few weeks ago, I showed you this nifty little graphic here. It's not very big. You can't see that. Um, I was talking about how Isaac, how, I was talking about Isaac and how little screen time he got in Genesis. I talked about how Abraham gets 14 chapters, and Jacob gets 12 chapters, and Joseph gets 11, and Isaac only got one chapter. But if you're eagle-eyed enough and you're good enough in math, you might notice that the math doesn't quite add up. If you add up all those chapters, there's still one chapter left unaccounted for. That's because there's one chapter in Genesis that isn't starring Abraham, isn't starring Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph. There's one chapter starring the man I want to talk about today. The man who I think exemplifies this idea of taking responsibility for your actions. So today, I want to talk about Judah. So let's jump into this. So Judah has only one chapter in Genesis, but we do know a bit about him. So in Jacob's twisted family tree, we we see that he has 12 sons from four different women, and thank God the Lord prospered Jacob, because imagine the child support he'd have to pay for that today. Anyway, Judah is the fourth son of Leah, Jacob's first wife, and the mother of all of Jacob's eldest children. But you wouldn't know that Judah and his brothers were the eldest by the way Jacob treats them. So I've talked about Jacob before and how he seems to be the victim of this generational curse of favoritism. See, his father never favored him as a child. He was always preferring his older brother Esau. And as an adult, Jacob completely repeats his father's mistakes. So first, he favors his wife Rachel over Leah. And then he favors Rachel's children over his firstborn sons. And he goes so far as to give Joseph this special many-colored coat. And this wasn't just a nice jacket either. You know, it was a symbol of Joseph's primacy over his brothers. The, the rabbis teach that Jacob gave each of his 12 sons a coat. But to Joseph, he gave a second coat. He gave Joseph a double portion. Only one person gets a double portion in the family. The eldest son, the father's heir, gets a double portion. Jacob was making it very clear to his sons who he intends to leave his inheritance to. I mean, this, 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 is why, this is why Joseph's dreams bother his brothers so much. It's not because the dreams are arrogant, it's because they're very likely to come true. If Jacob has his way, all of his elder sons will have to be submissive to their bratty younger brother. All the sons of Leah, the firstborn sons, will have to take a back seat to the son of another woman because dad loves her more than their mother. And that's a hurtful reality. That's years of resentment and hard feelings. And that's why the first place that we get to see Judah's character is the notorious story of the sale of Joseph. So we all know this story. Joseph goes by himself to meet his brothers, and they see him coming from a distance, and they start plotting to kill him. Now, Judah's role in this plot is interesting, because if you read this, it's clear that the brothers 
are not really committed to this murder. This story must have taken place only over a few minutes, but in those few minutes, the brothers changed their plan three times. This is, this is not a well-thought-out plot here. So the first plan is to beat Joseph to death and bury him in a pit, and everyone agrees this is a good idea. But then Reuben, the eldest, changes the plan. He tells his brothers, let's not touch him because uh, then his blood will be on our hands. Let's, let's just throw him into an empty pit instead and let him die of exposure. Hold on, go back a little bit there. This way it will be God who kills him and not us. I don't think the logic works like that. But. Now, I don't know about you, but this, this seems like a terrible plan to me. So not only is it needlessly cruel, but listen, I've seen enough revenge movies to know that if you're going to kill someone, you better make sure they're dead before you leave. Now, the last thing these guys want is to get home to their father and find Joseph, like, really dirty and bloody and really angry looking, you know, waiting for them when they get there. But despite what a bad idea this is, the brothers all immediately agree to it. They don't need to be asked twice not to kill Joseph. It's almost as if they don't really want to do it. And then a few minutes later, they change their plans again. Seeing a group of Ishmaelite traders, Judah steps up to the plate and suggests pulling Joseph out of the pit and selling him into slavery. And once again, the brothers all agree to it, despite the fact that a lot could go wrong here. What's happening here? Why does the plan keep changing? Just pop him on the head with a rock and you'll be home in time for dinner. What's all the elaborate plots? See, the brothers keep changing their minds because they are looking for a way out of this. They don't want to kill Joseph. And they're looking for someone to talk them out of it. They're looking for a leader to take responsibility and pull them back from the edge they're about to go over. You know, to his credit, Reuben tries. You know, he talks them out of killing Joseph outright. But the thing is, and this is what the Talmud tells us, Reuben is not the real leader of the brothers. Judah is. So the rabbis of the Talmud have some, they have some very hard things to say about Judah in this episode. Judah is not the eldest, but he holds a position of influence amongst his brothers. So the Torah teaches us that Reuben could not be a leader because he slept with his father's concubine. And so leadership passed from him to Shimon and Levi. But those two were responsible for the massacre at Shechem a couple chapters ago. And so they too became disqualified from leadership. Judah was the real leader of the brothers. He was the strongest, the Talmud tells us, and the brightest and the smartest, and the one who all the others looked up to. They looked to Judah to decide what to do. Whatever he told them, they would do. And that's why the rabbis placed the blame for the sale of Joseph entirely on Judah's shoulders. Talmud tells us that the brothers were all hoping that Judah would rescue Joseph and save them from making a terrible mistake. They were hoping secretly that Judah would pull Joseph out of the pit and carry him back to their father. But he doesn't. Judah looks down into that pit and he sees a privileged child, the favorite of their father. Joseph represents all the hurt that Judah has felt all his life. Judah knows that his father will never love him and his brothers the way he loves Joseph. And Judah hates Joseph for it. And when he pulls Joseph out, it's not to save him, but to sell him. And then Judah then leads the brothers in deceiving their father Jacob. Judah takes Joseph's coat, he rips it apart, and he dips it in the blood of a goat and brings it to Jacob. And in an act of just stunning callousness, Judah 
doesn't just go and break the news. He goes and he asks his father to identify the coat. Is this your son's? Do you recognize who this coat belongs to? Yeah. Jacob's reaction is heartbreaking. Jacob is a man who is acquainted with grief. He's led a hard life filled with suffering and hardship, and yet nowhere else in the Bible do we see a description of pain like this. Jacob is strong, but even he cannot bear this pain. He refuses to be comforted, and he declares that his grief will carry him into the grave after his son. The Talmud says that it was only then that the, all the, that the brothers saw how terrible their father, when they saw how terrible their father's suffering was, that the brothers truly realized what a mistake they had made. And they went to Judah and they said, Judah, you are a leader. Why didn't you stop this? If you had told us to, we would have brought Joseph home. And Judah just grew angry, of course. You know, what, you're putting the blame on me? Why do you blame me? I'm the one who saved Joseph. If it were up to you, he'd be dead in that hole right now, but because of me, he still lives, and our problems are solved. You should be thanking me. So, chapter 37 of Genesis ends on a very sad note. Jacob is in deep mourning that will last for decades. The brothers' relationship with their father and each other, well, they will never be the same. And this terrible deception will linger over them for the rest of their lives. Judah is unrepentant. His brothers are estranged from him. And Joseph is off to a dark and uncertain fate. So, what happens next? Okay, here's the funny thing, though. You read the story, and there's this big cliffhanger at the end of 37. What's going to happen next? You, you read the story, and you, and you turn the page expecting to find out what happens to Joseph next. And you're in all the suspense. Is he going to be okay? What's going to happen to him? But then you turn the page, and you read the next chapter, and it's not about Joseph at all. This, this is that one, ball, one oddball chapter in Genesis that I was talking about. After the sale of Joseph... The story doesn't choose to follow him. Instead, it follows Judah and what he does next. So we have this strange digression into the story of Judah and Tamar. That was the best illustration I could find for it. I better give this one a good recap because this is not as well known as some of the other stories in Genesis. So the story tells about how Judah has three sons. So he marries the eldest son to a woman named Tamar. But before they can have any children, Judah's son, her husband, dies. Now, according to the custom of the time, if a man dies, his brother marries his wife to continue his line. And so, according to tradition, Tamar marries Judah's second son. But that guy dies too. So Judah has a third son, but this time, this time he's afraid to let him marry Tamar. You know, he's, uh, he's become a little paranoid that his third son will die as well. And Tamar seems to be, have a little bit of bad luck around her. So Judah leaves Tamar in this uh, state of limbo, widowed and unable to move on. Tamar has to move back into her father's home and wait for Judah's son to grow up. But Judah, even though Judah's son eventually does grow up, he, he still doesn't marry, marry them. So Tamar is just here. She's waiting and waiting and waiting. Meanwhile, she, she wants to be married, and she wants to have children, and she wants to continue on with her life. And so at last, Tamar just takes matters into her own hands. So she dresses as a, a veiled prostitute, and she solicits Judah himself to sleep with her. So Judah's on the road. He sees this prostitute there, and she comes up to him. And he has no money on him. So she tells Judah, okay, um, just give me something in, in, as collateral. Give me your coat as collateral. 
I'll return it to you when you come back to pay me. So Tamar becomes pregnant from this encounter, but nobody knows that she was the prostitute. So when her pregnancy is discovered, Judas faces a difficult decision. He's the head of his family. He's the patriarch. He's the one who has to make decisions around here. And now his daughter-in-law is pregnant out of wedlock, and they don't know who the father is. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big deal here. So according to the law, the penalty for adultery is death. And as the patriarch of his family, Judah must sentence Tamar to her execution. But when Tamar is brought out, you know, they bring her on trial to the Beit Din, and uh, she's brought out. She tells Judah that the father of her child is the man who owns this coat. And she shows him the coat he left in her possession. And Judah realizes that he is the father, and that she had not done any wrong, so he spares her. It's a weird story, right? It's a kind of weird story. And it's, it, it wouldn't be such a weird story if it wasn't placed in such a strange place. Why, right here, in the middle of Joseph's tale, do we hear about Judah? I think the answer is, I, think, I don't think this story is a digression from Joseph's tale at all. I think it's a continuation of Judah's tale. See, in part one of his story, imagine Judah is a story in three parts. In part one, we meet a Judah who has all the gifts in the world. He's smart. He's strong. He's a, a natural leader. And yet he demonstrates this remarkable lack of maturity. He squanders his talents, and he brings pain and suffering to his family, and then he refuses to take responsibility and accept blame for his actions. Judah is that same man when this story between him and Tamar begins, but he isn't by the end of it. In part two of Judah's story, he begins to change. What causes it? What causes that change? So the answer lies with a closer look at the final confrontation between Judah and Tamar. Tamar's trial doesn't go the way you would think. You know, Tamar's got, she's got this whole thing under control. She has a plan here. She has all the evidence in the world to save herself before this, any, all this begins. If she wanted to, imagine this is Judge Judy or something like that. She could, you know, she could be called to the witness stand, and all of a sudden she'd be like, I have evidence, behold! And she pulls out the cloak, and she's like, you're the father! You know? She could have done that if she wanted to. Big dramatic thing. Judas is a partner. I have proof. She could have embarrassed Judah. And she could have saved herself all, you know, save herself at the same time. If she chooses, she can do that. But she does something else entirely. She lays Judah's coat before him. Not in front of the whole court. Just in front of Judah. And says, do you recognize whose coat this is? Does that sound familiar? What an amazing thing. Tamar, without even realizing it, is playing out Judah's deception of his father Jacob and forcing him to accept the part that he played in Joseph's sale. Tamar doesn't declare her innocence. She asks Judah to make a choice. If he wishes, Judah can sentence her to death and his sin will be covered up. No one will ever know that he bought a prostitute and slept with his daughter-in-law. He can get away with murder again. But Tamar asks him, will you recognize your responsibility? Will you cover up your sin? Or will you reveal the truth? And this time, with another coat at his feet, Judah does what he was unable to do before. He recognizes the truth and takes responsibility for his actions. He declares Tamar, 
you are more righteous than I am. More righteous than I've ever been. I've done terrible things. I've led my brothers to sin. I betrayed my family. I broke my father's heart, and I always covered it up. But now I take responsibility, and you taught me that. The strangely placed story of Judah and Tamar is the turning point in Judah's story. Judah is on a path now to regain his personal integrity and heal the hurts of the past and finally look the brother he betrayed in the eye again. And so we come to the final part of Judah's story. So during all of these events, Joseph has prospered in Egypt, and he's become a leader during a terrible famine that has struck the land. Judah and his brothers have come to Egypt to buy grain, and the fate brings the brothers back together again. So Joseph chooses not to reveal himself to his brothers. and Instead, in a rather convoluted plot, he puts them to the test. He accuses them of being spies, and he imprisons Simeon until they return with their youngest brother, Benjamin. When they finally return, Joseph frames Benjamin as a thief and threatens to make the boy his slave. So from Judah's perspective, man, the world's coming to an end here. When he returned to Jacob without Simeon and told him the only way to secure his release was to bring Benjamin back to Egypt, Jacob had refused. Jacob tells his sons, My son will not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he alone remains. If any harm should happen to him along the way, where you're going, you'll bring my gray hair down to Sheol in grief. Think about how this must sound to Judah's ears. His father just told him that he only has one son left. What about me? What about Leah's children? Don't you love us too? And look at the reason why Jacob won't let them return. He tells them if Benjamin dies... He will go down to Sheol in grief. Where have we heard these words before? Ooh, that's way too small. Jacob is echoing the words he said when he lost Joseph. Back then, he felt like his world was over, and now he feels the same way about losing Benjamin. You know who he doesn't feel that way about? Simeon. Jacob isn't going to his grave mourning Leah's sons, only Rachel's. Judah is reliving all that painful favoritism that Jacob had shown to Joseph all those years ago. Only now it's Benjamin instead of Joseph. Jacob once again is choosing the children of Rachel over the children of Leah. The last time he did that, Judah and his brothers responded by hating the son of Rachel. But Judah is a different man now. So rather than giving in to the hurt and pain the way he did with Joseph, he instead steps up and he takes responsibility. He promises his father he will protect Benjamin and bring him back safely, and at last, Jacob agrees. But Judah's true test is still to come. One day I'll get through a whole sermon without this thing going down on me. So they bring Benjamin down to Egypt, and everything seems to be going well. They get Simeon back, and they buy the food and start heading back home. But then disaster strikes. Joseph finds his silver goblet in Benjamin's bag. Again, think about how this must look to Judah. He doesn't know that Benjamin didn't steal his cup. Judah stuck out his neck for the boy. He promised his father he would keep him safe. And how is Benjamin repaying back? He recklessly stealing and putting them all at risk. 
In Judah's eyes, Benjamin must seem to be everything that he hated about Joseph. The foolish, spoiled, selfish son of a woman that the father really loved. All that jealousy, the hatred, the bitterness that's been building over the years from being unfavored, it all just reaches this boiling point. And then Joseph says, as punishment, the one in whose hand the cup was found, he will be my slave. It's like history is repeating itself. Ooh, I'm going to answer that phone. Hold on. I always wanted to do this. Hello? <laughs> one time the phone went off and I got real mad and I realized it was mine. <laughs> anyway, where was I? Anyway, so, the one, so Joseph says, as a punishment, the one whose hand the cup was found, he will be my slave. And so it wasn't, look, it's like, it's like history is repeating itself. Judah is once again responsible for the life of a son of Rachel. And now he has the opportunity to get rid of him in the same way he got rid of Joseph. All the other brothers are looking to him once again, pleading with him to silently fix these things, pull them out of the pit once more. How will Judah respond? Will he sell his brother into slavery again? All those years ago when Judah sold Joseph, he chose to lie and to deceive, and to cover up. This time, he tells the truth. Judah goes directly to Joseph, and he admits everything. Everything that he had always been afraid to admit before, even to himself. He goes to Joseph and he says, My father loves Benjamin. He loves him more than me, or any of my other brothers. We used to have a brother named Joseph, but uh, he's gone now. And uh, Father loved Joseph more than us as well, and it hurt. But I can live with that. What I can't live with is to return to my father without Benjamin. My father suffered too much in his life. I have caused him to suffer too much, and I won't let him suffer anymore. My father's life is bound to Benjamin's, and he can't lose him but he can lose me. And I can accept that. Let the boy go home to his father and take me instead. And at last, Judah's transformation is complete. Judah began this story as an angry man, unable to deal with the hatred and the jealousy he felt towards his brother. Rather than openly confront his feelings, he got rid of Joseph and covered up his sin. But now, years later, the lessons that he has learned in responsibility from Tamar have taken root. Faced with the same opportunity to get rid of another brother, Judah chooses to confront his feelings and accept responsibility instead. And in this act, Judah finally becomes the brother he should always have been. He becomes someone his older brothers can look up to and know will lead them in the right way. He acts as a true son to Jacob and a real brother to Benjamin. And with this act of truth, Judah finally breaks the cycle of deception that has plagued his family for generations. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and the family is reunited at last. And the brothers, they embrace and they weep over each other, and finally Jacob gets to see Joseph again, all because Judah made the right choice. We have a powerful lesson to learn from Judah the lesson that truth is stronger than lies. 
The truth has the power to set us free. Judah teaches us that we have the power to change ourselves, to become better people than we were yesterday. Judah spent his whole life trying to hide the truth, and it was only when he accepted the truth and allowed it to transform him that he became truly free. And we too have the power to break, that, break those cycles of pain and lies that we've been told and that hold us back. If Judah can do it, so can we. We can change too if we can accept who we are, assume responsibility for the things we've done, and let the truth transform us. Shabbat shalom, everyone. So I'm going to invite the uh, worship team to come back up here. And before I do, um, I want to make a little quick announcement. Back on the back table, you'll see some flyers. So something called the Simcot Minute. I really want to start instituting this thing here. I really want us to be able to share our blessings with each other. So please take one of those flyers. And if something's going on in your life, if God's doing something great in your life, if you have a mitzvah to share with us, if you have a blessing to share with us, if God's doing something wonderful in your life, I want I, like email the office and send it to us because we really want to create space for us to be able to share our joys together. This is called Simchat Yisrael. It's the joy of Israel. And, we, and our joy is our strength. The joy we share in the Lord is our strength. So I want us to be able to share those things with each other. So take one of those things back. Think about the things in your life and you know, let's, let's share them all together.